Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to start in verse 27. So while you're finding your place there, I, I just want to ask you um, to think about something in your life uh, about which you are just really passionate. So like, what, what is it that just really... Um, like either get you worked up or just get you really excited. Um, and I, I was thinking about like being passionate about something. And, and I would say there are, there are a lot of things that I would say that I love. Like I love baseball. Um, I loved playing it. I like watching it. Um, in fact, frequently I'm so focused, like if I'm at a game, I'm so focused on the crowd or on the game and what's going on, Miley will be talking to me and then eventually she'll say, am I annoying you? Because I'm, I'm like focused. So I, I love baseball, um, especially like to watch the Cardinals. Um, I love music, um, specifically guitar, but, but I just love listening to music. I love listening to music with lyrics. I love listening to instrumental music. I love listening to uh, unique kinds of music. I love food, probably too much. Um, but I don't know that I would say that I'm passionate about those things because I could live without baseball and I could make music to God with only my voice and I could survive on food that perhaps I don't necessarily enjoy. But I am passionate about pursuing God's holiness in purity. Um, and so our text today deals with that. Um, and I hope that if, if you are not passionate about this as well, I hope that when we get done today, you are. Um, let's look at Matthew 27 as we're starting. Would you please stand if you're able to, to honor God as we read his word? So uh, just for a recap or for anybody who hasn't been here, um, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has now started to give specific examples of how he raises the standard um, from what the people understood. So he says this in 27, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's pray. God, as we look at your word here, I pray that you speak to us clearly and teach us and, um, and that you would help us, Lord, to, um, to live in a manner that does not settle for low standards, but live live in a manner that um, is pursuing after holiness um, before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so the first point in your notes that we're going to be looking at today is that adultery in the heart stems from lusting in the mind. Adultery in the heart stems from lusting in the mind. We're going to be looking at verses 27 and 28 here where Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, so there's where he's raising the standard, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All right, so it starts in the heart. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and Deuteronomy 5, 18 um, are 
the places where this is recorded in the two places that Moses records the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. So those accounts of the Ten Commandments, God tells his people you should not commit adultery. So the law clearly condemns the act of adultery. But Jesus shows once again that the law actually has an underlying character that goes much deeper to condemn the sinful desire of lust in our hearts. And so just by the way of definition, lust is the inappropriate looking at or desiring after someone in a sexual manner. Inappropriate because it's not um, something approved by God. All right, just as the previous text where Jesus uh, talks about murder and hatred in your heart, just as that issue um, was really an issue of the heart, so is adultery. In fact, other Jewish teachers, Jesus wasn't alone in this. Other Jewish teachers also looked down on lust. Um, In fact, some of them would have also taught this very concept that lust is actually adultery. So Jesus teaches them that adultery begins long before the act happens. Jesus teaches them it begins long before the act. So we may think it's, an in, it's innocent to take a quick glance here or there at someone um, on TV or at the public pool or while you're online. But that is a slippery slope that will soon, you'll soon find yourself sliding down and sliding out of control if you don't fight the battle with the help of the Holy Spirit. So if you allow yourself quick glances, then eventually you'll allow yourself longer glances. And then you'll find yourself allowing, allowing prolonged watching then you'll find yourself seeking it out, gravitating toward things that will fulfill that lustful desire, gravitating toward TV shows or movies that will fulfill that lust in your heart. And you'll find yourself thinking about it frequently. And that will cause strain in your relationships. If you're married, it will cause strain in your marriage. But it's not just limited to the strain that can happen within a marriage. It it affects... Any sin that we are a part of, that we allow in our hearts, affects our relationships with everybody else. And so this one in particular is dangerous for relationships. You may find yourself, if you're married, you may find yourself, after you have allowed that to take root in your heart, find yourself expecting things from your spouse that are... um, that are unreasonable or not caring or loving toward them. You may let your guard down when you're around someone else of the opposite sex, when you're at, like at work or you're um, at something where you see somebody all the time. You might, you might be somebody you know well. You might let your guard down. So adultery, here's the thing, what, what I'm getting at, is adultery doesn't just happen. You don't just live a pure life and then have a lapse of judgment and commit adultery. What Jesus is saying is it all begins back here when you begin to allow lust into your heart and you, you allow it to take root and you feed it and you feed it and you feed it and you feed it and then when the circumstances are right, then you move into the action. Now, just like with murder and anger, 
there we talked about how there was there's appropriate anger and there's inappropriate anger well there's this there's inappropriate and appropriate ways that God has um, given for us to um, be involved with somebody f- sexually in the context of marriage and so um, I would add here too that it is there is this where it where it is there's the appropriate use of it and there's the inappropriate use of it and i would add that the thing that makes it difficult is that there is this strong connection between what you allow into your mind and what ends up in your heart so there's a proper way to to take part in it there's an improper way to take part in it and what you let in your mind is going to govern what happens here. Paul tells the church in Philippi in Philippians 4.8, you know, that's where he lists, he says, whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. He says, think on those things. Paul tells, um, I can't remember what, what letter it's in, but he, um, he writes to one of the churches take every thought captive for christ and so what paul is saying here is the same thing that jesus would be teaching like don't fill your mind or allow things that are going to be destructive in your mind fill your mind with things that will draw you closer to god fill your mind with things that of truth and things of um that are noble and things that are right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy those are the things we are to fill our minds with all right so when someone commits adultery though what what actually has happened is they've broken at least four commandments now there may be more um these four came to my mind right away i just wrote them down i didn't spend a whole day just pondering on what all could it could lead to in terms of breaking commandments. But there are at least four commandments that adultery breaks. The first one is uh, the command in the, new, in the um, Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. I won't go into any more with that. That's self-explanatory. The second one is also from the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. Because adultery stems from desiring someone who does not belong to you. And so you have now coveted. The third command, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. This phrase is key, in the form of anything, because idols that we worship are not just physical things. Um, And so God understood that when he gave this command to his people that we can make an idol out of anything. It can be... um, It can be an activity. It can be... A thought or an idea or a concept it could be anything and so we can take anything and inappropriately inappropriately uh, place that above God in our heart and worship that and so um, fulfilling lustful desires becomes an idol that a person is willing to sin in order to do it or get it or if they don't get it will sin in response to that. And so any idol, any, we can make anything an idol in our heart. Um, that's just a good test. If, if you're willing to sin for something, or if you sin because 
you don't get that thing that you want, you've probably made that thing an idol. And fulfilling lustful desires is one of those things. Now, the fourth one comes from 1 Corinthians 6.18, which says, Paul says, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And so what we have here is a unique, Paul, Paul tells us, is a unique uh, sin that's different than other, other sins because not only do you sin against God and not only do you sin against a, another person, but you also sin against your own body. And so sexual sin is in a, um, is in a unique category of its own. And so when you commit adultery, you break at least four commandments. Um, it, is, it is so destructive, and it really does wrap into every part of your life. Uh, Proverbs 6 and 7 speak of the dangers of adultery. And so the reason why God commands us not to do this, here are some, here's something that I think is a good summary of of how dangerous this is. Um, I'm just going to read, I'm not going to read the whole thing. That's kind of a long text, but I'm going to read Proverbs 7, 11. It says, she, meaning an adulterer or a prostitute, she is loud and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. And I think that's a good summary of it because it helps me to understand that, like, we need to be on the defensive with this particular temptation. We need to be on the defensive because what Proverbs seven eleven tells us is you don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to, if you, if you think that you can just avoid it, well, think again because it's everywhere. It's on the street. It's in the squares. On every corner. Everywhere you turn, and uh, you don't need to, you don't need to look very far in our culture today to be bombarded with things that are trying to fill your heart and your mind with lust. So Job in chapter thirty-one uttered something that I think it's it's a prayer that I've prayed for myself for years. It's a prayer that I think each one of us should pray for ourselves and for other people. Job, chapter 31, Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. And so the idea here, what Jesus is getting at, what much of Scripture speaks of, the idea here is if you don't even look then temptation, the temptation to desire that is significantly reduced. If you don't look, you have a better shot at being victorious in this, in this battle. Now, these impure thoughts or these little glances here, there are the things that we've been talking about. May, they may seem like not much. Um, in fact, I would say that's how we justify it most of the time. We think that wasn't a big deal that I did that. Um, so the thing is, though, that like to us, first of all, we are really, really good at justifying our sin, or at least I am really good at justifying things that I know I shouldn't be doing. Um, 
but that's, that's human nature. I think in our fallen nature, all of us do that. And we may even be able to justify it in our own minds thinking, well, nobody else knows about it. We, may be, we might be able to hide that kind of stuff from people, but you can't hide it from God. The smallest offense in this area is, is like magnified in the eyes of God. And the problem is that when you lust, you've already decided how you're going to act. Your actions just don't, might not just come right away. They might come down the road when the circumstances present themselves. But if you have decided to allow lust in your, heart, lust in your mind, um, then you've already decided that you would let down your guard later on. And so it's really, really serious because it's so destructive and it's so easy to give into. Uh, but remember, the, when we went through the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart. I don't know if you remember what I said that meant, that word pure, what I said it meant, but it means no mixed motives, no, uh, you're not serving God and serving something else at the same time. There's no mixture going on in your heart. Your heart is fully and wholly devoted to God. And so in terms of purity, your heart cannot be mixed, can't, cannot have a mixed motive. You can't have two things you're serving. It's got to be fully devoted to God. All right, so that's the first point, that um, adultery in the heart stems from lusting in the mind. The next couple of verses to finish out our text, 29 and 30, tell us that avoiding lust is worth taking drastic measures. Avoiding lust is worth taking drastic measures. Let's look at 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. All right, so Jesus is not speaking literally here. He's using a, a literary tool called hyperbole. Um, so he's using hyperbole here. Um, hyperbole, just so that in case you are not aware of it, hyperbole is an exaggeration that is used to make a point. An exaggeration that's used to make a point. So he's using hyperbole. He's exaggerating to, to make a point. So what is the point then that he's trying to make here since he's going to this extreme in terms of language? The point is... Do whatever you have to do to stay away from sexual sin. Do whatever you have to do to stay away from sexual sin. And I say sexual sin because lust doesn't only lead to adultery. Lust can lead to all kinds of sexual sin. So, so the point is to do whatever you have to do to stay away from sexual sin even if you have to take a drastic measure to, to stay away from it or to get away from it. So when he says to them, I said, told you he wasn't speaking literally, he's using hyperbole here. When he says to them is this, he's saying, if you can't keep from 
looking at a woman or a man without lusting after them, then you would be better off if you were to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand, uh, whatever's causing you to sin. You would be better off to do that um, than, than to destroy your life by allowing that to take root. By destroying your, um, then destroying your life by allowing that sin to master you. So the question I think that we need to ask ourselves is why would Jesus use hyperbole here and not in the other teachings in the Sermon on the Mount? Um, I mean, he doesn't always use hyperbole, which I think is one reason why this is uh, this text sticks out um, because he's doing something that he doesn't do often. But the question is why would he use it here? And not in other places. Um, now I'm going to give you I'm going to give you one theory, um, and I'm not saying that this theory is not correct. It could very much be correct. I'm going to give you after this theory. I'm going to tell you uh, what I think is maybe even the heart of the issue that goes a little deeper than the theory. But one theory is that he was using hyperbole to refute a common belief of the time. So some of the people at the time believed that, you know, you had, you had the resurrection um, at the end in the Jewish mind, but some people believe that before you were made whole, so after you are resurrected, but before you were made whole, um, some people believed that when you, when you were resurrected, you were resurrected in the form physical form in which you died so you weren't made whole yet you're going to be made whole but there's this resurrection to an imperfect form and then you're made whole and so with that kind of that kind of understanding that means if you think about the martyr many of the martyrs um for example they were raised they would be raised to death raised back to life with body parts missing um think about uh john the baptist he was beheaded you know, and so there's this thought among some of the people of the Jewish first century culture that believed you were raised in your physical form you died in before you were made whole. Um, and so some commentators have suggested that Jesus may be drawing on a specific thought, uh, that specific thought of the Jewish culture, um, some of the Jewish thinkers of the day. Um, and so perhaps for the sake of argument, he's saying, you know, if he's addressing this, he's saying, would it not be better to remain pure and enter life eternal even if your body was not complete? Wouldn't that be better than to have your body fully intact but suffer eternal condemnation because your heart was adulterous and you allowed it to destroy your life? So that's, that is a theory that people have held to in terms of why he used hyperbole here. Um, and that could be true. Um, but I think to go a little deeper than that, my opinion on this is that he's, te he's using hyperbole to teach how important sexual purity is. He's using it to teach how important sexual purity is. Because lust and sexual sin are so destructive. Now, I listed earlier um, all of the all how how adultery violates all those commands. Um, <coughs> excuse me. It is such a powerful force that sucks you in and destroys your life. 
And if you think about it, like this, this idea that we need to remain pure, that we need to avoid lust and sexual sin, that teaching is interwoven from beginning to end of Scripture. It's all over the place. It's a really, really important issue in the eyes of God. And it's so, sexual sin is such a powerful force that, um, that I think Jesus is using hyperbole to say, you need to understand how important this is. This is not just, this is not just, I accidentally, you know, couldn't hold my tongue. This is, this is something that will absolutely destroy your life and relationships. And so, so, the first reason why I think that is because lust and sexual sin are so destructive. Another reason I think he's using hyperbole to stress the importance of sexual purity is that sin violates, that sexual sin violates another person on the most intimate of levels. It violates another person on the most intimate of levels. And the destruction or the destructive effects of that sin they don't just affect you and the person that's involved in it. In if you are, if you have committed adultery, it doesn't just affect you and the other person. It affects anyone who's connected in any way to those relationships. And so, I think the second reason he st- uses hyperbole is to stress how important it is because of this: sexual sin violates on the deepest, the most intimate of levels. Did my mic go out? It's back. Okay. All right. Uh, the third reason why I think he's, he's using it to teach the importance of sexual purity is that God designed sexual intimacy the way that he did, and he gave it to us as a gift so that we can experience and understand the most intimate of relationships. That's a long sentence. You can sum that up if you want. But the point is that there are, there are a few reasons why God gave us, why he designed us to be sexual beings and he gave us the gift of sexual intimacy. And one of those reasons is so that we understand what it's like to have the most intimate of relationships among people. And I would go on and I would say that, that, that the um, one flesh union that God has given us um, that that union is what takes us to that most intimate of levels. And I don't know if, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I think Scripture is clear that he gave us this, not just as a gift, not just for procreation, but he gave us this to understand that level of intimacy so that we can understand the level of intimacy that he wants with us. He doesn't want just a surface level relationship with us. He wants, he created us to be in fellowship with him and he wants us to know him. He wants us to know him on the deepest of levels, on the most intimate of levels. And so with that understanding then, Understanding that he gave this to human beings so that we could understand what he desires in terms of the depth of our knowledge of him and and our relationship with him. With that understanding, sexual sin then causes our understanding of him and his glory 
to be distorted. He gave us this so that we would be able to understand him. And then when, so when we use it in a sinful manner, it distorts our understanding of his character, of his, of his being, and of his glory. Now, some of you are thinking, I'm so old, I don't even think about that stuff anymore. And some of you might be thinking, you know what, that's just not a temptation that I struggle with. And I think that's fair to say, like some people struggle with these temptations, but they don't struggle with other temptations. And people over here might, that might be flip-flop. They might struggle with the ones that this group doesn't, but the ones that this group does struggle with, it's not a problem for these people. So that's fair to say, you know what, this just isn't something I struggle with. But that doesn't mean that it will never be a struggle for you. It doesn't mean that Satan won't shift gears and try a new strategy for bringing you down. And so I think the fact that it is spoken of so strongly here by the lips of Jesus that um, it's something that every one of us needs to be on guard. All right. Some application. Let's look at some application. If you're somebody who is going to be passionate about purity. If you, if, you, if you want to be or if you are, here are some things that I think um, are good things for us to put into practice. One, guard your heart and your mind. Now that's kind of a general sweeping statement. So there's lots of ways that you might need to guard your heart and mind, but just some practical things that I think would be across the board for everybody. Uh, be careful what you watch on TV. Be careful what you read. Um, I can't tell you how many articles deal with this. Like, I'm reading an article that might have to do with economics, and the next article up is about this, which I don't understand how the two go together, but you would think that they'd put articles that seem like what you're searching for. But so be careful about what you read. Don't, don't be sucked into reading articles or reading stories or watching shows or movies that deal with this stuff. God says stay away from it. Uh, one more thing to, about guarding your heart and your mind. Be careful of the situations and the conversations that you allow yourself to be a part of. If you see that a conversation that you're a part of is turning that way and they won't refrain from that, then just walk away. If you're in the midst of a situation that you think might suck you into this, that might, might you know, uh, tempt you to lust and, and feed that lust, then get out of there. Remove yourself from the situation. If you can't remove yourself from the conversation or the situation, then you may want to have someone there with you who is like-minded with you, if at all possible. So, guard your heart and your mind. Number two, make a covenant with your eyes that you will not look upon someone with lust. Make that prayer of Job part of your prayer life for yourself. Make a covenant with your eyes that you will not look upon someone with lust. Number three, if you want to be passionate about purity, 
ask God for it. I guarantee that he's, he will grant that because that is his will for you. And Scripture's promises that if you pray in my will, I will answer. So, if you want to be passionate about purity, ask God for it. Number four, if you, if you are passionate for purity, if you're passionate about this particular thing, or if you desire to be passionate, maybe, maybe it's not something that has been, you know, a life-changing thing that you've, that you've put in place for your life, but you want it to be, then you need to know this. You will do serious battle over your mind. You will do serious battle for your purity. Um, Satan is not going to attack you um, in an area that's not a threat to him. So if you are somebody who has dedicated yourself to keeping yourself sexually pure in every way, including your mind and your heart, um, then he's going to come after you and he's going to attack you in that area. He's going to put things in front of your eyes that, you know, you may be reading an article and an ad may come up or playing a game on your phone and some of the ads that come up when you're playing games on your phone are ridiculous. He's not going to just let that go. And if you're somebody who has, has not like really put these things in place in your life, but you want to, he's not going to let you just switch teams in terms of your mind without a fight. So you need to know that you will do serious spiritual battle over your mind. Your mind is one of the biggest battlegrounds for Satan and spiritual warfare. So you will do serious spiritual battle over your mind and for your purity. Uh, one last thing in terms of application. If you really want this for your life or if this is something that you are passionate about but you need you know, to make sure that you are taking good precautions, allow someone to check with you regularly and to hold you accountable. One of Satan's strategies is to make you feel like you're alone. Anytime he can convince you that you're by yourself, people aren't going to understand. They're not going to understand, so just don't bother. You know, they're going to ridicule you because they're not going to get it. If, if, he, if he can convince you that you have no support system, then he's going to be real successful at getting you to fall into temptation. Allow someone to check with you regularly and to hold you accountable. And let me say this, like, you got to be honest with them. If you're going to do this, if you've got an accountability partner for, for, might not be just for this, might just be for your whole life, or maybe you guys get together once a week or every month or whatever. But if you're going to allow someone to hold you accountable and it's going to be successful, you got to be honest with them. You got to be able to say, um, here's what happened because an accountability partner is not going, he's not there to berate you. An accountability partner is going to be there to celebrate successes with you. And so when you have a week that, you know, you're successful, there's going to be praising and celebration over that. And when there's a week where, uh, perhaps there was failure, the accountability partner is going to be there to get on their knees with you and to enter into that battle with you alongside so that you are not doing this alone. And so this is a pretty necessary thing just for any Christian.
to have people who will hold you accountable and people that you will actually allow you to ask. You allow them to ask hard questions and you'll give them honest answers and together you do battle. All right, so as I wrap up, um, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus raises the standard here and he says it's not just commit the, the act of adultery. It's all the stuff that leads up to it because it starts long before. So I'm going to ask you to do three things as I conclude here. I'm going to ask you to consider these things. One, make a commitment to absolute purity in your heart, meaning that you take whatever measure is necessary in order to guard your heart from lust and adultery. Now again, maybe it's not something you struggle with, but you still have to be on your guard because it's so important that Jesus took a new tactic in his teaching and used this hyperbole that explained the drastic measure that would need to be taken in order for people to understand how important this is. So make a commitment to absolute purity in your heart, taking whatever measures necessary in order to guard your heart from lust and adultery. Number two, Consider praying for each other to remain on guard and remain pure. We need the support of each other praying and lifting us up to the Lord in this area of life. And there may be other people in your life that are not part of our church family, but they're part of your world. Um, and you may know that you may know that you know someone you know struggles with this. You know, add them to the prayer life to the to the list of people you're praying for to remain pure and to be on guard. And finally, number three, I would ask you to, to consider praying for me um, that this would always be a, something I stand firm in um, as I b- battle um, Satan with every temptation he throws at me. Um, so as somebody who long ago committed myself to this, as somebody who has committed it not just not just for my own life, but I've committed to this um, having a pure mind and heart um, in this area for the benefit and blessing of my wife and my kids um, and any other family that might come later on. Um, so as a person who's made that commitment and now as a person who is trying to encourage other people to make that same commitment, um, you can be sure that there's going to be a target on my back. And so I ask that you would pray for me that I would never give in, um, but that I would always remain pure before the Lord um, in this area. So consider making a commitment to absolute purity in your heart. Pray for each other to remain on guard and remain pure. Pray for me that I will always stand firm. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, the fact that Jesus uses this literary tool here so that we can understand how important this is. This is a heavy text. It's only four verses, but it's very heavy in terms of teaching and understanding um, this part of life that so many in our culture today just don't care about it. They have no idea how it's destroying their life. And they, 
They won't listen when people try to tell them. They only live for the moment. They don't look down the road to see the dangers of this. Um, And so because that is so much of our culture, that's infiltrated so much of our culture, it's also something that we are bombarded with. And so I just pray that you would... um, that you would burden our hearts with a passion, a passion that will actually change our approach to living in a, in a way that is pleasing to you, that a passion that will, um, that will never die out, but will always be there to, um, to push us on to remain pure in our heart and our mind. Um, guard us from the temptations let us hate that sin, even in the level of our mind and our heart. Let us hate that sin. And love, may our love for you and our desire to please you be a thousand times stronger than any desire that Satan might try to stir in our flesh. In Jesus' name, amen.